right, you bunch of yahoos. Strap yourselves in for another episode of Dan and Don's Toxic Masculinity. In other words, shut up, sit up, and pay attention. And welcome back to another episode of Toxic Masculinity, where we are here to offer up our political satire approach to our views, and we're here to entertain, offend, and defend anybody and everybody. We are just a couple of crotchety old farts that have a bad habit of speaking the truth, but won't let a few facts get in the way of a good old story. We believe in America and Americans. If that's not for you, well, then I suggest that you change it's the all. channel. We still believe. <laughs> Even freedom of speech will rub your face into the cow pie of reality. We'll make you scratch your head or scratch your ass, hopefully not at the same time. Without further ado, my cohort in crime is none other than the man of men, Don the Predator Fry, and I, his trusty sidekick, Dan to be Severn. And Don, do you have your faithful companion Quinn with you today? Oh, no, sir. She's at home. I, I you know, when... Kenya Suda passed away. I inherited one of his pups. And so uh, Quinn has a companion to hang out with at the house now. You know, so I get a oh, okay. Quinn, so Quinn's an English bulldog and then um, Blue is a French bulldog. So uh, they, they they irritate the shit out of each other, you know. <laughs> so, okay, so uh, irritation. Is all we're looking at, just irritation. That's right. They love each other. They love each other. All right. Okay. That's just another way of just saying love. All right. So do you want to introduce today's guest, or do you want me to jump in here and keep on rolling, or what? Oh, hell. Today we have the pleasure of John Layfield Brad, Bradshaw. I screwed that one up, didn't I? John That's all right. Bradshaw Layfield. <laughs> is that right, JBL? That is correct. All righty. Right. Make sure yeah, he's the winner of uh, everything underneath the sun in the WWE. He's held the, the World Heavyweight Championship, the uh, tag team titles, and every other belt that they have, I believe. So, so well, one of the things I always like to ask people there, John, right off the go is, what was the lure of professional wrestling? What was the? I mean, was the lure, or did somebody approach you and say, "Hey, I think you ought to," or you know, what 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 was it that happened? Thank you, and, and thank you for the introduction. You know, first, I want to say to you guys... Roll, roll roll blade. His feet are too big to rollerblade anymore. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I want to tell you what, what a great treat it is to be on with you guys. I, I've watched both of you guys. I've watched nearly every one of your fights. I mean, I'm a huge fan of you guys. You guys have the, the alpha males, man. It's Thank you, just, sir. It's a pleasure to be on Legends. So thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I grew up watching wrestling. Now, you know, I grew up in uh, West Texas, we had two sports, as they say out there, football and spring football. You know, we didn't have wrestling. We didn't have baseball. We didn't have anything because they wanted the kids to play spring football. But my, one of my youngest memories was watching wrestle with my grandfather. And I got to carry, get the Funks wrestling out of Amarillo. And I got to get the mm -hmm. Von Erichs wrestling out of Dallas. And so I remember when the, the Von Eric boys broke in, you know, Kevin, uh, David, and Carrie. And I used to watch wrestling all the time with my grandfather. I always told him, you know, one, one day I want to be those guys. How old were you? Yeah, that, oh my that, first first of like third grade. I mean, that, that was the area, you know, for however, you know, whatever that is, six, seven, eight years old. And yeah. I, that was you know, I love my grandfather. He was a well, really, for Dan. He, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a good, <laughs> kind man, and I love spending time with him. He was a big wrestling fan, so I used to watch wrestling with him every Saturday night. I mean, did he I mean did he believe in it or did he uh what oh, was 100%. It? 
Okay. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 He would tell me that, uh, you know, guys that would do stuff that they should be criminally indicted. He, oh yeah. He bought in 100%. There was, there was not a, well, not a doubt. Well, I, I asked you that question because I had a grandmother the exact same way. And I mean, she just, she just couldn't believe it when she found out that I was, uh, I was a, a professor. So she's like, Danny, you, you shouldn't be out there with the, with those, with those men. They're, they're, they're bad men and all that kind of stuff. But oh, she, well, she had a pretty salty mouth there too. So <laughs> <laughs> well, my grandfather passed, my grandfather passed away, I think when I was in high school, I think. So he didn't see any of my wrestling, but he used to always tell me, he goes, now if you become a wrestler, you'd be like Fritz von Erich. You'd be a good guy. Do not be a bad guy. So. <laughs> He would be very disappointed. <laughs> well, I mean, in school and stuff like that, you said two sports, football or wrestling. So, I mean, you're always a good size athlete, stuff like that. Were you a football player in high school? I was, and I had a little success with it. I was, you know, you know, typical drafted by the drafted by the Raiders, right? That's right. Yeah, I was. Well, uh, like I guess that's, that's a little more than just a little success. Come on now. Well, a big fish in a small pond. You, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of guys were stars in high school and college. I was, you know, no different from you know guys who were big fish in a small pond. So I was all American consensus in college. I was all state and all the stuff in high school. So I had a pretty good, uh, you know, high school and college record. Then was in the pros for for about a cup of coffee, about two or three years. Well, I mean, what was your position? What would you play? Offensive tackle. So back oh, then, nice. probably 285, and that was average back then. That was not, you know, nowadays that'd be a tight end. Uh, but uh, <laughs> back then it was probably about average. So, you know, my height's 6'6", six, six, about 285. Le left yeah. tackle mainly, but that's that's before they changed offense where guys quit putting their hand down. So nowadays it's easier to play left tackle because guys don't go from a three-point stance. So if you're right-handed, it's hard to put your left hand down for a lot of guys. It was for me. So that was really difficult for me. But nowadays, guys, they go out of uh, a two two point stance, and they take more of a bucket step, and it's all zone blocking. So they've changed that significantly. But back then, it was harder for me to play left tackle because I was right right arm dominant. Hmm. You know, I haven't, I haven't watched a football game since that asshole started taking a knee. You know, what twelve years ago or what have you. you know, so yeah, I've eliminated the sport and obviously they don't need my money they don't give a shit <laughs> it's, it's the most profitable league in the world it's unbelievable i mean they talk about you know the premier league soccer but the nfl is 12 13 billion dollars a year not counting what all the stadiums make around the the surrounding uh expansions they have with all the commerce they have around so unbelievable right. Right. yeah i got i got into a little bit of a tiffy uh conversation with some liberal broad one night at a party, you know, because uh, they were gonna let let this uh, let the uh, Cardinals build a stadium without charging them tax and all that. So, how many people do you think they put to work? Well, that's just you know, that's just for one day or ten days or you know, out of the year. And I said, oh shit, like what we owe them a living, you know, crime, and they can find a find a job the rest of the year on their own. Oh, uh, you know, she, she about had a heart attack. <laughs> I said, I asked her, I said, you're liberal, aren't you? <laughs> liberal, well, John, I, I know that from, from, from some stuff I was reading on, on the internet there, uh, some injuries, some injuries now have kind of like more like sidelined you from your athletic career or. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had several, I, I was injured. Every, I had a surgery or broken leg every year of my 
uh, college career. My senior year, I broke my leg uh, late in the year, ninth game. And I'd, I'd literally, I had moved to left tackle to go against John Randall. John Randall, you know, was a 10-time All-Pro for Minnesota. He was set every sack record there was in Division II, and I wanted to play against Randall because they didn't flip defensive ends. It was Texas A&I, now it's Texas A&M Commerce, our big rivalry in the Lone Star Conference. And because they didn't switch him, I never got to go against him. And I thought, I need to go against Randall because he's the best player in Division II. And I thought I was doing okay as an offensive lineman. Move over to left tackle, and you know the game's going pretty well. It's kind of a stalemate in the second quarter. I break my leg, uh, my lower leg, and I, I played on it uh, because I wanted to finish the game so bad, and it kind of screwed up my leg. I never, I never really recovered after that. Yeah, but you still. Well, played how, I mean, how did that, that had to have affected you in your, in your professional career there too, though, didn't it? I mean, it seems not, not as much. I mean, to give you an example, I, I ran a, a, a four eight two forty on protesting day as a junior. After I broke my leg and played on it for that game, I never I never ran under a five one again. So I just I just lost any mobility, any sideward mobility, especially, but any speed or anything. It didn't have as much to do with the wrestling because I could wear the big knee brace on it, and it, you know it had more okay. to do with you know back and shoulders and stuff because you know the, the legs weren't quite as important. Yeah, no, that was one thing that I did like about professionals, and you you if you had any kind of injury stuff like that, as long as you would talk with whoever you're working with that night you know you could you could still pull off a match of, of right. sorts so but that was uh to to me i took more punishment in the sport of professional wrestling than i did in all my cage fights i kept thinking i, I don't know if i can handle this here right now being picked up and slammed this way slammed that way they could Holy moly, I'm used to grabbing people and slamming them, not, not being slammed by people. And that's, it's uh, funny you say that because Shamrock said the same thing. He said, I take more beating in professional wrestling because I don't have to get hit when I'm fighting pro. Yes. I try not to get hit. Yeah, no, I, that is. And that's where, where people don't understand it. It's because, uh, you know, being the fact that uh, being both an MMA guy and, and doing the, the professional wrestling, it, which is kind of unique, though, because now they're both underneath the same umbrella, owned by the same corp corporation so it's kind of like cool and then uh, i've had people ask me like what do you think is going to happen with that i go well it's going to give a lot of mma guys who have some type of charisma and personality to be able to cross over into professional wrestling but i don't think you see too many professional wrestlers that are going to try to cross over into the mma world i think it was like cm so i think it was cm punk that uh uh was one of the last people I know that uh, tried to tried to make a, a move like that, but uh, no professional wrestlers. Yeah, I, I travel with two belts, NWA belt and, and a UFC title belt. And when people say, "Well, they see NWA and they don't know what it stands for," and I'll tell them, explain that to them, and uh, then they'll they'll say, "What well, what kind of wrestling is?" That? I said, "Well, it's like professional, so it's like what you see on television, WWE, WWF, you know, whichever one you're, you're used to, to watching that." And they always say, oh, you mean that fake stuff? I go, well, I go, there there might be a script to it, to where you and I know who's going to win and stuff like that, but you can't defy gravity. When you pick something up and you te teeter it on over, it's going to come on down, and they're not exactly landing on a trampoline either. It's not a very cushy type surface. When you hear that, that big crash, bang, and boom, that's because they are landing on plywood and stuff like that two by 12s and uh you know there might be a microphone over there to help get a little bit more noise or something like that out of it but uh you can't defy gravity being picked up and being slammed over 
and over again. Yeah, and I, I don't think people mean anything by it. You know, I think what they're saying is when they're saying fake, which I know a lot of pro wrestlers, you know, just hate that term. Yeah. Uh, and I can understand why, because it's, it's it's scripted. It's not fake. And, and, you know, I think that's what people are kind of trying to say is it's scripted more than, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. No, no, I I, 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 I think, yeah, I, I would agree with you that that's what probably what they're trying to do right there. But it's uh, not... It, it's it's a very it's a tough career and what because as, as I stated earlier you, you and I didn't get a chance to really interact much uh, because you you're doing your thing I'm I'm doing my thing but at the same token I was kind of like the new kid on the block even though I was a lot older than what people thought I was because I mean they're, they're kind of blown away when they see me with, with all the white hair now and I go what they don't understand because of, in my entire professional wrestling career and even in my entire fight career. I was coloring my hair. I prematurely went gray and uh, I was coloring my hair because even, even Mr. Fry here throws me underneath the bus there because <laughs> Don, would you like, would you like to jump in and tell you a little story that you tell that you like to throw me underneath the oh, bus yeah. under? Oh, I'm throwing you under the bus. Come on, Mr. Severin. You know, <laughs> back uh, way, way back when last century, um, you know, in 1995, the, uh, you the first ultimate ultimate that they had there in um in denver and you know we're dan's getting we're all getting ready you know there's five or six of us you know in dan's entourage excuse me and um a few hours before dan has to go out there and compete to see who's the toughest man on the planet you know he says he needs to go to the grocery store so we all follow him out, you know, we're like little ducklings following Daddy Duck, you know, down the down the road and into a grocery store and follow him up and down every aisle. Don't know what he's looking for. He won't, he won't, you know, he's kayfabing us. And then uh, <laughs> all of a sudden he stops, man. He had to go out and buy a buy a big old 10, 10 pound uh box of uh hair dye, black hair dye. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah, that is great. Well, again, when you when you look at psychology one on one, because the, in, in the fight in the fight world, you don't want to give your opponent any kind of psychological edge. And you look at if you were standing in a cage and you look across, you see a, a gray haired, gray mustachioed person. You're not going to be quite as intimidated as if it's all dark and dastardly looking. So I always said that psychology one on one is one of the things that I I, I utilize right off the get go. Yeah, and your opponents probably liked it very much as well because if they got beat up by the gray-haired guy, nobody ever let them live it down. Well, probably, probably <laughs> but uh, again, I was trying to trying to save my own bacon in, in, in the process, you know, because I, I already had intimidating good looks there for my father. He, he blessed me. He blessed me with that, and uh, I could fly you by the seat it of my. Was, it was so great when you came in because you know wrestling has a history of having really great wrestlers, legit wrestlers in it. You know, and and you're you were one of that great lineage of you know Danny Hodge of Thez of Jack Briscoe and so many that were you know legit great wrestlers that came in. You know, and after you, Kurt Angle comes in. I mean, it was just yeah. you've always had these you know legit tough guys. I don't know if it's to give legitimacy to it or just because you guys are so good at it. One of one of the two, maybe uh, both. I think I think it's a combination because I, I know just recently uh, Gable Stevenson just signed a contract there as well. I mean he was a he won the NCAs as a heavyweight, but again to see a heavyweight, he pulled off a standing backflip, 
as as this little ceremonial after after he won right there, I'm thinking, well, I can't defy gravity like that. So I I take my hat off to him. But he was a very charismatic type individual, and I knew that he would. He will do very well in the realms of professionals just because he's got that size. He's got that demeanor. And whether he goes baby face, he'll, he'll do just fine with whatever he does. Well, talking about tough guys and uh, legitimate wrestlers. Um, you, I was broken in. We got broken in by the same guy, Brad Reagans. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, well, he's a... 1980 Greco Roman world champion would have, would have been the gold medalist if they hadn't avoided caught in the Olympics. Yeah, you get he got cheated out of the uh 76 um gold medal, you know, because he That's beat right. he beat everybody, but he ended up uh they did the point thing system back then, so he he lost you know, ended up fourth place, I believe, you know, because of points, but he had defeated the top three guys. Yeah, Brad was one of the great trainers, he trained Brock Lesnar, trained a, a ton of guys, trained Vader. Uh, Vader came out of playing in the Super Bowl. Well, that's right. Trained so many great guys out of Minnesota. You know, Brad was had just that great name about him. It, it, you know, it was great. You know, back in the day, if you're trained by, you know, like Hero Matsuda, Brad Ryan's, or Billy Robinson or something, you just got treated differently. And it really helped to be able to go place and say, oh, who are you trained by? When you say Brad Ryan's, people just, they, they, they treated you differently. Yeah, it was like a, a hush. <laughs> you that's know? right. That's right. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> That's right. You yeah. survived that? Yeah, shit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Brad. Well, John, do you have do you have do you have, do you have other siblings that uh, participated in other sports, uh, football, or? Yeah, old, my older brother played uh, golf and it was very good golfer. So shot a sixty-one in a tournament one time. He was a really good golfer. You know, just below probably pro level. And my sister uh, was a state champion tennis player. In fact, she was the coach of the year either last year or year before in the state of Texas, uh, she's a little bit older than me, uh, has done a wonderful job up in McKinney, Texas, and uh, turned, into, turned into a great coach. Wow. Again, so that definitely uh, you got some good genes that run in the family there, and uh, a couple of different family members have been blessed to do some things. That's, that's great. Yeah, my sister done a great job up there in uh, McKinney teaching tennis. You know, she was, I, I didn't know she was such a good coach. I don't think she did either. She started coaching later in life and, and just hasn't a, a great affinity for it. You know how it is. You know, it's just, just because you're a great player doesn't mean you can coach, you know. No, exactly. And, and you know, some people have the ability to translate, you know, what there is in their mind to what they're talking about. And some don't. Sometimes you just have a great athlete who's just a great athlete and maybe right. cannot even explain to you why they're such a great athlete. Yeah. I've, been to a few different uh, clinics and I've, I've said to him, thinking, "Oh my God, this this guy's a great wrestler, but uh, he sure cannot break down right. technique to teach it whatsoever." Here, wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. John, you again. What I like to bring up on a point to you is, is that uh, as a professional wrestler, you've seen this industry, and there's a lot of dark sides to this this industry as well. And again, you you came into it and you came out of it, and. Uh, you came out of it on, on, on a good note. And, and the fact that you have your mental faculties, you have uh, you have success, and, and you basically were good about your money, whereas a lot of wrestlers fall into certain pitfalls and uh, they don't have much when it's all said and done. Yeah. And you know, a lot of that is just from advice I got when I first started, you know, guys used to always say buy a house, you know, and what they're, you know, they're saying is, you know, own something. So when you get done, you know, the old saying was you, you can always 
uh, pump gas and, and pay for your bills if you own your home. And so it was one of the first things I did was uh, buy buy a house of, you know, $84,600. I can tell you exactly what it was, uh, a little 2,000 square foot house in Athens, Texas. Uh, but I always had, I've never had any bills. You know, Stan Hansen used to always tell me the great, uh, you know, cowboy wrestler, don't buy a boat. You know, and what he's telling you is don't buy a bunch of stuff you don't need. And, and I've right. always been, I've always kind of adhere to that because I always, you know, when you're, when you're poor at any time in your life, you don't want to be poor again. And I've, I've been pretty poor at times and being poor teaches you things. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It, 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 it's a, it's a very humbly type of thing there. No, it's uh no, I, I like it when people can share the fact that they, they did well with their money and the fact that they saved money, they invested money, they used the mind to where, you know, they don't have to worry about things later on in life. And that was, uh, Uh, you know, you know, we're successful and, and that same type of uh, man right there to where, you know, we jumped into a couple of different crazy things and uh, they would save, save a few bucks and uh, invest it here or there and uh, to know that you're okay. You're okay. Brad, Brad used to always tell me, save your money. I thought, man, am I that bad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. You can take that meaning a bunch of different ways. Like, wow. What did he, what did he mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> save your money oh, right brad loved you know brad was uh you know i, I kind of just come out of pro football and so i was you know like the biggest guy in my class and we, frank anderson was up there too you know the, the world champion out of sweden yeah, yeah. Uh, but brad was the main guy so we do conditioning and brad would always go i'll go with john i'll go of course you will <laughs> <laughs> come on. i was like the i was like the worst in generals to the globe trotters you know i, yeah, I remember yeah. like oh in 2000 against brad because oh. i had to go against him every day and he's like i'll go with john I know you will. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he needed a night off. <laughs> That's right. He needed a night off. He, he wanted to teach the big pro football player a lesson or two, which, um, which he didn't have a hard time doing. Oh, he was so damn strong, you know. And oh, unbelievably so, strong. You know, some so, guy perform with so good with this technique, you know. I mean, he can get you, get your position just perfectly and put you on your ear. Yeah. He's amazing. Well, I mean, he had that barrel chest on him there yeah. too. There, I mean, he was just, uh, you know, just he, yeah. you know, he was a good Greco guy. So, and yeah. an understated guy, you know, he Brad was not a braggadocious guy. Oh. Brad, was, Brad was just a good dude, you know. He just, you know, it, it was tough, but he, you know, he didn't mistreat people. He was just a good dude. Yeah, yeah. Hey, man, I mean, when he got disappointed, man, you just hurt your feelings, you know. You That's know. right, because you wanted his seal of approval. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, Oh man. So what was your first gimmick? Uh cowboy. I came down to Texas and uh, literally I, I walked in the first day to Sportatorium where I grew up watching the Von Erichs wrestle, knocked on the door on a Friday afternoon. I knew they wrestled on Friday night. I just come out of uh, camp up in Minnesota, drove down to Texas because Vern Gagne's territory is pretty much dissipated at the time. There wasn't really any work up there. I knock on the door and I had a cowboy hat. I had my wrestling trunks and James Beard, the referee answered uh, Dick Murdoch and Skandor Akbar were in the office and uh, they said, what do you want? I said, I want a job. And they said, have you been, are you a wrestler? And I said, well, I've been trained. I don't know if I'm a wrestler, but I've been trained. They said, who trained you? I said, Brad Rigans. They said, Brad trained you. And they said, what did you do before that? I said, well, I played a little pro football, not much, but I played a little pro football and, Lou, uh, 
Lou Perez, Al Perez's working cousin, was supposed to be there that night to work the main event, and he couldn't make it because of the travel or something. So Dick Murdoch was sitting there. He goes, wait a minute. We got this kid trained by Brad Ryan. Let's stick him in the main event and see if he can work. Yeah. So In the main event? Main event. I'm, all I'm looking for is a job. All I'm look, My first match. First match. And, and so <laughs> they, they called the, the champion in, the Rod Price, who was a great worker, and he said, listen, if he can work, go 20 minutes with him if he can't go two minutes and just squash him and rod was a great worker and he could do anything and he carried me for about 20 minutes and so my first match was a surprise main event and it all came about because brad rangans had trained me and dick wow. Murphy, knew had such respect for brad rangans that they needed somebody that night they didn't know what to do and they stuck me in that role and thank god i had the right people the right referee james beard who talked me through it and got me through a match and it gets better. I come back from the match and Kendall Nagasaki, Mr. Sakurada was booking for Japan. He didn't see the match. He didn't know I couldn't wrestle. He just knew I'd been trained by Brad Rangans and I was working in the main event. He thinks he's got this find. So he pulls me aside when I come back and says, Hey, would you like to go to Japan? <laughs> I've been in the business for 30 minutes. And I said, <laughs> I said sure. When do you want me to go? So two months later, I'm in Japan wrestling. I'm tag team with Bob Orton Jr. Have no idea what I'm doing. None. I mean, none. <laughs> they stretched me. They beat. I mean, it was yeah. It was uh, it was baptism by fire. In fact, Bob Orton told me that gravelly voice. He said, "You know, kid, you do some good things, but some things you do makes absolutely no fucking sense." How long you been in the business? And I said, two months, sir." And he goes, no, 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 not how long you've been in Japan. How long you've been in the business? I said, two months, sir. He goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> I, said, I have no idea. Oh, my God. What Bob, great... Bob would take me because the guys were stretching me, and I didn't know how to defend myself. And so Bob would take me to the, the match before the matches and show me some sugars and some hooks and some things and tell me what they're doing, how they're blowing me up and how to, you know, use my body weight to rest on guys, how to conserve my energy for the comeback and stuff. After five or six weeks, you know, I got this great lesson from Bob on the job and uh, Randy's dad. And after that, you know, I was a lot so much further on my way after that Japanese tour than I was before because of Bob Orton Jr. How'd you like working in Japan? Oh my God. I loved it. Yeah. absolutely loved it I, I loved every bit about it after that i went to japan almost every month for kendo then i went for tenru then i later went for uh mr baba uh that's where you got to work with stan and doc and albright and those guys i loved it i, I really figured i'd end up in japan I, you know back then heels didn't last that long with wwe you know the, the, but then the business changed and now that you know they signed you know longer term contracts i figured i'd wrestle two or three years in wwe and then end up finishing in japan but I ended up staying with WWE. Yeah, but, but, but being in Japan, though, I mean, they, they just, they, they appreciate it. You know, the, the first time you ever been in front of a Japanese audience, they're so quiet because they're actually Theory. studying the match. But then all of a sudden, in unison, you hear them all go, oh. Yeah. You know, it's like going, wow. They really, it's a whole different uh, type of a crowd and uh, they really appreciate it. Uh, and they, they appreciate just, just, the longer that you've been in it, I, I always say that if you're going to do a re retirement tour, you should do it in Japan because they would appreciate you more there than they ever would in the United States. That's for sure. 
you know, very respectful people. You know, I, I loved every tour I went over there. I, I really enjoyed wrestling in Japan, enjoyed the style, enjoyed everything about it. You know, I ended up wrestling in Europe for two years for Auto Vance, and it was very similar to Japan. A lot of mat-based wrestling, you know, a lot of really, you know, hardcore style wasn't the way because it wasn't about chairs it was about you know being kind of stiff <laughs> but it was it was kind of very similar to, to the style in japan hmm. yeah what uh, i mean what what kind of what what are your your main projects that you work on for now then john what 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 preoccupies your time i when i was in uh i lived in bermuda for about 10 years and uh I started up a charity work with at-risk kids and that's the main focus of things I do. So I've worked, uh, I help organizations when they're working with low income kids. I got a okay. wonderful group in Memphis right now, Memphis center city rugby, and I'm just on the board. I don't, you know, do anything day to day, but they have a hundred percent of their kids in the worst child uh, poverty in the United States are graduating high school. And a hundred percent of the kids are also getting placed after high school, either college, military, or trade school by a placement a coach they put in there instead of hiring like a coach coach so you use rugby as a carrot to get them in then you work with these kids and i've done the same thing i've helped build schools in uh malawi africa uh in zimbabwe and uh rwanda tanzania not all help building schools but help programs the school that i helped was in malawi which were one of the poorest countries in the world but i really Did enjoy working i really enjoy working with uh low-income kids you know i, I Every kid's born with the same potential, but they're not born with the same opportunity. And, and I really yeah. enjoy helping these kids. These are ju just good, tough kids, and I really enjoy helping them. No, again, kids are, I mean, I, I look at, they're innocent. I mean, they, they, you know, they're brought into this world, and uh, the parents, uh, they're, they're not around there to help guide them or help them in any kind of capacity. They're kind of uh, left to uh, fend for themselves, so... Was Memphis, was that the first one that you started working with? Yeah, or? Memphis Inner City Rugby. No, I worked with a program. I started a program in Bermuda, uh, Beyond Rugby oh. Bermuda. And we worked with gang, gang, you know, keep kids out of gangs, keep kids out of jail, school. And we had 100% graduation rate there. We really became an island-wide initiative. And because of that, I got to speak at some conferences. And off those conferences, I got to go and I got to work in the slums of Mumbai and Delhi. I got to work in... Harlem. I got to work in uh, some places up in Chicago between the Latin Kings and two, six nation up there, a wonderful program beyond the ball, Rob Castaneda that works with those uh, gang members up there. And I've been able to travel around and work with some of these wonderful groups that they all use sport for the most part to get the kids in. And then right. they, they use that carrot to help them with whatever they need their job skills or educational skills or or whatever they need. Sometimes, you know, a kid just needs a grown up saying, I want you to do better in your class. You know, it's, it really can be that simple. No, again, I, I think that the caveat of offering up any kind of athletic program, most, most of these are, are, are young males and, and they're looking for some type of a release in the first place. So if you can sit there, let them, let them thump on a heavy bag or something like that and just talk to them a little bit. Sometimes that's all they need is to let out a little bit of that that steam, and then just to at least have a voice that they uh, that they can be they can be heard. You know, when I was in Bermuda, it's funny you mentioned that about young males just need some sometimes need an outlet. They they gave me a list of gang members to to probably not talk to. Well, those are guys those are guys I went after. You know, the gang leaders, not the gang members, the gang leaders. Because I figured if they were leaders off of the gang, they'd be leaders somewhere else. And I played on their toughness. I said, I know you're tough kids. And I said, you can come out here and you can legally, 
hit guys all you want, tackle guys. There's no pads. It's rugby. And I said, come out and show your toughness and be a leader in a good way. And nearly every one of those kids came out. And once they came out, then everybody followed them because that was the big tough kids that that came out first. Well, I could, you know, again, I did, as I said earlier, when we started to say, this is the most that you and I have ever interacted with, with each other. I could, I, I could see now where, where I mean, you, you've got good communication skills here in the first place. So I, I could see where I think you could easily to talk to these people and uh, explain to them in a, in a at least in a, in a manner that they would understand, comprehend, and to, to get them out because, uh, you know, anytime that you can take a bad situation and turn it to a good situation, um, that's that's uh, quite a kudo for uh, for you for doing something like that. I, I, I did this. I'm, I'm learning more and more things as this conversation takes place right now. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like that. I'm in, I'm in kind of a, you know, I'm in kind of a dilemma because I, I don't want to, I don't do this because I want people to know I do it, you know, and, and I don't, I'm not trying to say that to brag either. I'm just, I, I, the only time I put it on social media is when I'm trying to raise money for programs. No, and John, so, I, I, I totally um, understand it because even in my own training facility in, in Coldwater, Michigan, I work with a lot of uh, low income type of students, stuff like that, because I don't want, I don't want these kids to go off into, go into a, a bad element. So knowing that you are, are, you know, you help out different low income type families, stuff like that, that, that can come in there. They can't do things, but I'll just say, just help me up. Just help me around the gym here. Help me clean a few things here. Help me mop a mat here or there. Just do stuff like that to where I go, you know, I'm not, it's not a charity right now. You're giving me what's called sweat equity. And I, and I go, it makes them feel better to know that they're, it's, it's not, it's not, they're, they're not looking at, at a handout. They're looking at that the, they're, they're giving this opportunity and, and they're, they're going to give some effort in, in the process there. So I've always been big about uh, what I call sweat equity because there's always sure. something to be done around the, the property. That's for sure. Yeah. These kids are like any other kids. They don't mind working hard. You know, the, the big misnomer is, you know, you can't work them that hard. You can't put structures in place that are restricting. These kids crave that. It's, it's like a bee to honey. You know, when they, when they have an, an adult that shows an interest in their life, because so many of my kids come from single parent homes and they have an adult right. that says, I want you to do this. And I want you, they understand the expectations and they enjoy the expectations and they enjoy meeting those expectations and working hard and feeling good about about themselves and it really gives them an outlet that they don't have and it, it helps in everything that they do yeah well again that especially if you deal with the gang stuff like that that physical element to help release some of that pent-up anxiety stuff like that because even in that gang there's that there's a pecking order so yeah. <laughs> it's you know so. Oh, we had a kid one day, I was in Bermuda, and he said, the coach says, grab him. So I grabbed this kid, and I didn't know what had happened, but I could tell something was wrong. And I said, why, why am I grabbing you? And he said, well, I got to go to a fight. And they had a, a gang that was coming to beat him up and right, right outside of our pitch. And we had the first day of uh, practice, we had to postpone it because of a murder. So it was, you know, this was, you know, some of these weren't just, you know, handbags. These were, you know, some pretty serious stuff. And he was leaving his bag so that he wouldn't get his bag stolen and getting beat up. And he was going over there. I mean, he's a pretty tough kid. He's going over there against by himself. It, he's going to get, he's not going to win this fight with all those guys. And so I went over there and I ran off the gang and I came back and I, and I talked to one of the guys that stopped him. And I said, listen, I know you're in that gang. And I said, I know that uh, you're going to suffer repercussions because you're the one that told the coach this kid was going over there. I said, why did you do this? 
And he said, well, that's what you told us to do. We're a team. And I realized at that point that that Jersey meant more to him than that game, that all he wanted to do was just belong. As long as he belonged, it was fine. It just, he, yeah. he belonged to something good instead of something bad. Yeah. No, and that's I, all any kid wants. I think is just, they want to belong. They want to feel appreciated. That's all you, probably any adult wants it <laughs> as well. No, no, no. I, I totally agree with you, John. I mean, it, it's, uh, you want to belong to something. You'd rather belong to something good as opposed to, you know, cause I mean, I always say that all kids, just like adults, they know when they're doing right. And they know when they're, when they're doing wrong. And I think you'd rather know that you belong to something doing right as opposed to the opposite right there. So, you know, and it's, uh, Knowing that you're gonna take, you got the potential of taking quite, quite a, quite a whooping in the process there, and the fact that you're willing to endure something like that, that's, uh, yeah, that's not an easy thing to, to face up to. So you got to commend a, a kid for, you know, standing, stepping up, and then uh, looking forward to, well, doing something like that. But. Yeah, and you know how it is when you know when you help a kid out, and you know that it probably if you hadn't helped him out, something bad was going to happen, meaning you know incarceration or something like that. Yeah. You know how it is with the kids you help out, and you see them later, and they have a family, and you're like, you know, that's that's cool, that that's awesome. That no, no, yeah, I call it, you. You're getting paid off in dividends because they'll they'll come up to you stuff like that, and they'll they'll shake your hand, or they'll put their hand up on your shoulder stuff like that, and they'll simply say. They look at you. They look say thank you. It's like going. Nothing else has to really be said. It's just like you know, you made you made a difference somewhere along the way there, and that's uh, that speaks volumes when 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 those kind of moments ha happen right there. So it's uh, uh, my my place has been shut down for the last couple years. Well, first due to the COVID that took place because it, it had a stranglehold on on the gym industry sure. uh, in particular and. Uh, Michigan just happens to be one of those states that's a heavily democratic type of uh, state. So there was a quite quite the chokehold on uh, a lot of uh, industries. But uh, I'll just say I, that I, my, I did. It was unbelievable. I, I live up in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, which is one of the most liberal counties in the world. And I'd come down to Texas uh, every month, you know, to see my mother, you know, who's helped take care of. And I'd literally, it was like two different worlds. One was, I, I can't even I, imagine. People are outdoors with their mask on walking by themselves up there. And down here in Texas, it's like no pandemic ever happened. <laughs> it's like, do whatever you want. Well, that, that's what even boggles me. Even still to this day, I can still see someone driving down the road. They're all by themselves. And yet they're wearing a mask. Right. I'm like going, who, who are you looking to, to not be infected by or something like that? I, I or people still wear masks. I, I don't really don't care if they want to wear the mask and stuff like that. I used to I used to think it was ridiculous that there was a, a six foot distance yet you had to you had to be away from everybody there. And I would take my I pop up my little cell phone and I would point out to my feet and I I I I'd make a little I'm 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 cheating here today. I'm tippy toying over the line here right now. I'm closer than the mandated five feet here right now because I kept thinking like germs though what uh, what kind of distance there is to jump and stuff like that. The bunch <laughs> of uh, what are the I call it the COVID caper is all I refer to it as. <laughs> Just so. stuck and stupid is what it is. <laughs> well, <sighs> so anyway, <laughs> John, how'd you get into the business? I mean, you played football, and then what? 
Yeah. But, you know, like I said, I'd gotten hurt in college and I, I'd gotten hurt a couple more times in pros. And I just kept my left leg just kept screwing up on me uh, through surgeries and stuff. And, and I couldn't pass the physical anymore. Then my third year, I got, I was in the world league playing uh, Jason Garrett was our quarterback who coached with the Cowboys. And they cut me my third year when the NFL sent their uh, players down to play in like a minor league type system. And I still had a chance to hang around a little bit longer and I thought, you know, I don't want to be that guy that's just always on the cut line, always on the bubble. And I'd always wanted to be a wrestler. And I'd met a guy at San Antonio, Randy Thornton, who had wrestled in Japan. And so I, I talked to him. I said, hey, how do you get into wrestling? He said, well, you got to have a trainer. And I said, well, who's the trainer? And he said, Brad Reingans. And so just by luck, uh, he told me Brad's name. So, so you know, back then it was hard to find a name of somebody else in another town, you know, without the internet and all that stuff. So it took me a yeah. while and I found found his name and he was just gracious as he could be i told him my background told him i want to be a wrestler he said i got a school starting in i think a couple months or whatever it was he said come up i'll find you a room and guys uh basement that rents out rooms the guys who are training with me and so i went up there and stayed up there one summer up in minneapolis thank goodness it was the summer because <laughs> that place that winter, place is yeah. cold <laughs> in the winter and I went up there and trained with brad and uh you know, as, as soon as I came out, you know, I'll tell you the story because of Brad's name, I started getting jobs in different places. Uh, I just got lucky that I'd met a guy who was trained by Brad. I didn't know any trainers. I didn't have a relative in the business. I didn't have anything, any attachment to the wrestling business. I just got lucky that Brad was the guy. Who else was in your class with you? Uh, two guys. I wish people ask me all the time, two guys who never made it. And I don't know who, I don't remember. One of them was a big tall guy and one, one was not uh kind of a medium height guy. N never heard their names again. N never, not, not one time, not never ran into them anywhere. Nobody ever I go up to it anywhere that would say, Hey, I trained with you and Brad. I can't even remember their names. I got it. Basically I was the only one that came out that, <laughs> that got yeah. a job. Well, a lot of people, I mean, they, they don't they don't realize what kind of a training camp you're about to walk into right now because even you, you you're 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 just you you're going up there, you're asking if he could help train you. And yet, do you know what you're really walking into? Oh my goodness, no, I had no idea. I'd never done any amateur wrestling, never done any, obviously any Greco-Roman, nothing. You know, we didn't have it. We didn't have any of that hardly in Texas at the time. Hardly any amateur wrestling. Yep. So when I went up there, you know, I'm trying to learn the iron claw is what i'm trying to learn you know i don't know anything i don't know what i'm up there for and all of a sudden you know, brad's got us on the mat we're, we're shooting we're he's stretching us and or stretching me he wasn't stretching the other guy he's stretching me a lot i'm doing something he had a tree that you suplex this huge tree you'd suplex it over and over and over and you know he's just training us like we're going into battle and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. It was uh, unreal how tough it was, which I didn't mind the tough, but I, I was not prepared for it being that tough. Now, once, yeah. once you're there a week or so, you're kind of realize kind of what you're getting into, but uh, I went in there completely eyes wide open, had no idea uh, what was going to happen, how I was going to get a job, how I was going to make a living, anything. Yeah, when, when you say suplexing this tree, are you talking about like a, a throwing dummy, a heavy bag or no, something no, like no, that? No, no, it was a tree. It was an actual tree. An actual log? An actual log. I asked Dan when he gets back. Don, yeah, okay, yeah. Don, if he gets back, if he, if he had the same tree there, because I've talked to other guys that had it. It was a big tree. It was about five or six feet uh, tall trunk. It was a, a big around as a, yeah. a large person. Okay. Weighed maybe a couple hundred pounds. 
and you, you'd okay. flip it over, you'd suplex it, you'd do all kinds of stuff with it. It was worn smooth, so there were no splinters in it. But he'd been okay, yeah. he'd been using it for years to train people. But he used that as this suplex dummy. You do all kinds of twists with it, all kinds of moves with it, all kinds of suplexes with it. And yeah. uh, that, that tree drove me nuts. Oh, okay. John, John I, I had my three most reliable workout partners because most of the time my workouts were done by myself. My three reliable workout partners, I had a heavy bag, I had a throwing dummy, and I had a wall-mounted, spring-loaded wrestling machine that uh, it was made for amateur wrestling for drilling on, but I used it in a way that it had never been used before because I've got these boxing gloves on and I'm actually working all types of striking combination, but then striking, but then moving into hitting it for lateral drops, shooting it for, for singles, doubles, the whole nine yards because I was I was in preparation for, you know, the ultimate fighting championships. And I sure. did, again, I just, I, I, do I did things to, to the three machines. I hoped I didn't ever have to do to another human being because I, I, John, I had never been in a fight in my entire life. I scrapped with my brother. Really? I, I got, I got, I got, uh, uh, seven other family members. I'm second on a totem pole. I got a total of four brothers, three sisters. And uh, I guess like I the only fight I ever got into was scrapping for maybe, maybe, maybe go for the, the last pork chop that was on the, on the dinner table or something like that. I got more scraps there. Hey, Doug, <laughs> while that, you were going, we're talking about Brad Rangan's tree. Did he have that tree when you were there? Yeah, that big log. Yeah. Yeah. That big log. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. That's so did, 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 were you out there trying to suplex this log too? Yeah, yeah, it's just. I think I think Brad just uh, made shit up just you know you know I uh, screw it. It was unreal. He made us do all kinds of things with that stupid. I call it a tree log. What the stupid log? Yeah, yeah. Just suplex it, turn it around, do all kinds of stuff. I got so sick of that freaking tree. <laughs> Anybody's been out there? We're talking about Brad Ryan's tree. I, I don't know if Brad did it as a rib. And yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> But it, it was hard work. It was. It was. I'll tell you though. It is. <laughs> Brad Brad's an amazing athlete, man. I'll tell you. Yeah, absolutely amazing. You just had that strength that you know just. Oh, he's a know, freak. Just a freak. A freak. Yeah, you know they. I, I know it's not that what they used to call double tendon strength, which I know it's not, but that's what people would attribute it to. But that, right. that's that's Brad Rangans. Right. Well, say we say. Double tendency. First thing that came to my mind was Danny Hodge. Uh, I'm trying to squish, pop uh, apples and stuff like that. Yeah, we got to meet him in Japan one time. Man, it was cool. It was cool. He, yeah, he what was, a legend he is, uh, or was. I guess he's passed away since. But yeah, passed, yeah passed legend away. Danny Hodge. So you worked with Al Snow, right, Dan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, Al was uh, a friend of mine by the name of uh, Dennis Kasperwitz. He was the uh, uh, he was one of the coaches of the Michigan Wrestling Club, and uh, and then basically, I also knew him as Denny Cass. He was a professional wrestler, so he was he had been both. He'd been uh, um, he'd been an amateur wrestler a lot longer, and, and but also got involved in professional wrestling. He just had kind of like this, but he, he just never ever spoke about it very much. And then when when the nineteen ninety two Olympics came around, a new rule came down from the United States Olympic Committee that allowed athletes to be both amateur and professional simultaneously. Um, and that's when I uh, decided to to jump into professional wrestling. That was my, my first profession ever was professional wrestling as of the 92 Olympics. UFC didn't even exist at that point. And then by 19, 
94, that's when the UFC actually came into existence. So I started off as a professional wrestler first. Danny Cass said, uh, you know, he, he was really trying to discourage me, really trying to discourage me, but I was kind of like going, I'm being a bonehead here. It's like going, no, I, I got to see this through. He goes, well, I'll take you to this place. And he brought me over to Body Slammers Gym in Lima, Ohio. And that's where I ended up meeting Al Snow. And what, what a character Al, Al was. I mean, he still is. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a great character. And uh, he does different. Uh, he, he runs. Uh, I'm sure I think he, he, he runs some type o -O of play. Yeah. OBW. Yeah. They just did a Netflix uh, deal on it this past year. It's, it was really cool for Al. Yeah. But with the, who, was, who, that, who was it that owned it just before him? Danny Davis. Da there you go. Because I, I, I knew that Danny Davis. Because I, I went down there when Danny Davis owned it at the first, at the first portion. Because then I, they showed me where they're shooting these professional matches. So I, I kept thinking, what a smaller area this is. I, I, I was yeah. actually, I was shocked as to what this was done. But then now, what you could do with the green screen, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling yeah. with technology and the green screen. What you could do nowadays. Yeah, I was one of my first riding partners in WWE. We rode together for about a year or so when we first started. You know, we both. You know, weren't weren't making any money, and uh, you know, as before, everything kicked off with Stone Cold and The Rock, and everything got so big. And I rode with Al and uh, Dutch Mantel, Tom Pritchard, a bunch of guys, Glenn Jacobs, Kane. We we'd all take turns, you know, putting four people in a in a full size car. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, trying to yeah, figure out what? a way to make money. And, and that's good. People just don't understand how how much time a wrestler spends on the road. I mean. Oh, it's unreal. Doing that, doing the show is probably you know the the, the at least the, the fun. I, I'd say the, the the pinnacle of it all. But you know the fact that you got to get packed up and then head off to the next location to where. How many times have you woke up in the morning and you as you're rubbing the sleep out of your eyes, just you're wondering where am I at and what is my function today? That's right. You have no idea what city you're in. Absolutely none. I've actually called down to the front desk. You know, because we used to work. You know. 250, 300 nights a year. And, and you, you, I literally wake up and go, I don't even know where I am. Yeah. Well, and that call I, I live on desk, the guy would go, huh? Goes, this sounds strange. What city am I in? <laughs> yeah. God, like, I think I might should call the cops. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's funny because, I mean, I literally have lived out of a planner my, uh, since my junior year in high school. That's how crazy of a schedule I was keeping for my amateur wrestling because I, I had by my sophomore year in high school, I had a couple college coach, coaches said that, hey, if you keep up the good work right here, there'll be a potential for some scholarship money. I think, oh, wow, that's this is uh, I, 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 my first option was I'm just going to graduate and then I'm going to go into the military for four years, come on out and go to college on the GI Bill because that's what a few of my other fellow classmates, they had old, older siblings, that's what they did. I thought, okay, that's option number one because again, Ask a mom or dad for money. There was no money to be had. I got uh, seven other brothers and sisters. They're feeding and clothing eight kids. How am I going to do this? But then, uh, by like I said, by my sophomore year, I uh, had had a little bit uh, of some some recognition from some coaches. So then, after that, I really started putting my effort into not only just during the high school season, but then when the high school season would come to an end, I I, I played three sports: football, wrestling, and track. But the track coach, I had to deal with the track coach. I, I go, if there was a Saturday track meet and there was a Saturday wrestling meet, he wasn't going to see me at the track meet. He, he was he was pissed at me because I was pretty good at the shot, the discus, the things that they I even ran the high and low hurdles at that point in time. So um, I, I could score a few points for, for the team. But my effort was 
I love I love football, but the hard part about football is you have to rely on ten other players to yeah. do their job. And if someone misses a tackle, someone misses a block, and you lose, you lose as a team. Definition of, of uh, sport of wrestling: team sport based upon individual performances. The team can lose, and I can still go on. So I I chose the sport of wrestling over football. And uh, at uh, Arizona State, the head coach was a guy by the name of Frank Cush. And I mean, he was a very successful uh, collegiate coach right there. And he used to come and watch the home matches. And then they would corner me back, uh, you know, back when I back in the locker area. So he's like, Severin, you're an animal. He goes, I see a linebacker written all over your face. I go, coach, you got me. I, I said, I tear my heart. I'll give it to you. But I go, do you have 10 other players that will do that same thing for you? And then we pause. I go, that pause spoke volumes to me. So I chose the sport of wrestling, and, and again, it's you know, it's it it, it 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 did good for me. I mean, it's been it's a, it's a tough sport, and ironically, I mean, even as I look at your ears, I go, you don't have cauliflower ears, and and, and look at all the wrestling you've been doing. Yeah, I got lucky. I never never got one. I got one one time, and it went away. So I, I was very lucky not to not to ever have the you know the problem of the cauliflower ears. Yeah, because so. usually you, you you end up with a that uh, a Danny Hodge or or, or you know one of these other right. people. Yeah, you get it's got it's got some pretty Somebody good. Somebody eventually. Yeah, they double doorknobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they think it's so funny when you're, you know, as what guys don't understand, they think it's so funny when you have some injury like a cauliflower ear, everybody just laughs at you. Not one person feels sorry for you. Oh, you no. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's just, and when you're that, that sport, they're just, I, I don't get it. It's kind of going, I, all through my high school career stuff, that I always wore headgear. Even when I trained and for doing the MMA and stuff like that, I wore headgear because these guys, you know, you're, 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 you're working out with a bunch of knuckle draggers. And some of these guys just don't understand. They think it's cool to have, you know, a fat lip, a, a broken nose. And, and no, sooner or later, all these things can come back to haunt you later in life, which through your career, I mean, you know, John, as father time kind of moves along, how is your body holding up from all the injuries you've had and stuff like that? You know, not bad. I broke my back, was one of the main reasons I had to re retire. And, you know, I've had just the typical injuries of a wrestler, you know, some herniated discs, a, a broken back, you know, a couple torn but biceps. When, when you broke your back, what was it? Was that actually in a match or something like it that? It was, because yeah, it was. Yeah, it was in a match in uh, London, a uh, three way match. And it, it got snapped. And when it did, I everything went numb. My fingers went numb. My feet went numb. I thought I was paralyzed. And I think Nick Patrick was a referee. I'm not sure. I don't remember that for sure, but. He goes, you okay? I go, I can't feel anything. And he goes, oh my god! I go, give me a minute, give me a minute. What, 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 what was it? What, 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 what happened at the time? What kind of a move or maneuver I was? In was... A, I was in a hold, and the hold got broken up. And when it did, it pushed me back and just snapped a vertebra right in half. Wow! And uh, you know, I, 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 feeling came back. And I, I finished the match, you know, because it wasn't a paralysis deal, you know, the, the, the feeling came back and I finished the match and I came back and I told, told the doctor, I said, I think I broke my back. And he said, ah, oh, you know, if you broke your back, I said, I just told you, I think I broke my back. <laughs> and he goes, okay, we'll get it checked out later. So I wrestled the rest of the tour and came back and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then finally they took me to have an x-ray you know, before they had, you know, nowadays they would have stopped the match. Sure. And sure. That, took me to the doctor and said, you know, told me the bad news that I broke my back. Wasn't a paralysis issue, but it wasn't an issue that, I, but I couldn't get over. And so that's why I ended up 
he ended up having to, to retire. Wow. No, it's, it's, uh, again, you, you, like, as we were talking about before, when you're young, you, you do so many stupid things and, and, or, or you do, or your friends do stupid things to you, things of that nature. And it's kind of like, sometimes you just wonder, how did you survive childhood or your, your, your twenties, your thirties, you know, and then, then you start getting to a certain age, it's kind of like going, now the mind kicks in a little bit more. I, I better watch out. If I do this, what are the repercussions going to be at this point in time of the injury? Yeah, and I think I got a little lucky. You know, it sounds unlucky to have a broken back, but I, I was at a point where I, I would have I would have wrestled five or six more years. There's no doubt about it. I, I enjoyed what I was doing, and you know, I'd finally gotten where I was decent at it. And because of the back, I had to retire all of a sudden. And because of that, I think my health is actually pretty good. I still have a little issues from the back, but for the most part, my health's fine. You know, I'm, I don't know what a 57-year-old man is supposed to feel like. So I may, <laughs> I may be really healthy. I don't know. How much you know, fun? If I'm not, so what? You know, it, it is what it is. I'm healthy for what I am. How much fun did you have uh, with Ron Simmons, working with Ron Simmons? Oh, my God. He was he was, he was so much fun. You know, the whole thing came about is my birthday. We were up in, uh, let's see, where were we? We were up in Philadelphia coming down to Baltimore, and, his, and Brian goes, hey, it's your birthday, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said, so uh, we're going to, let's have some drinks. And as we travel with him, Godfather, and Teddy Long, by the time I get down to Baltimore, I'm in no condition to do anything. Of course, I go out. And I run into Vince and Shane McMahon and they have to sit, put me in their car to send me back to the hotel. And next day Vince uh, sends for me and I thought oh, I'm in trouble. And he goes, have a good birthday. And I said, yes, sir. I did. He goes, I'm going to put that on television. And I said, what? He goes, you and Ron sitting around drinking. He goes, that's entertaining. He goes, that's what guys do. And so I come out of the meeting and Ron thinks we're both getting fired. <laughs> and he goes, uh, he goes, what he say? I go. He wants us to drink on television. He said, "That's the best news I've ever heard." <laughs> and so from that point forward, we were the APA. I had so much fun with Ron. You know, three-time All-American, first you know recognized Black World Heavyweight Champion. You know, he just Ron's a man's man, and uh, he was he was so fun to work with. It, it just everything about it. We had a great time together. <laughs> my, my, probably a better time on the road than we did in the ring. <laughs> who, came up with the, who came up with the idea of the door the frame ron did 100 percent ron right they're they're building the set and ron goes leave it you know he's got that james earl jones type boys he goes leave it and they said what do you mean leave there's just a door he goes yeah it's perfect and they go ron there's just a door they go yeah yeah ron goes yeah leave it and they, that was the ron's idea to just have a door yeah we locked ourselves out of our office one time just with a door <laughs> 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 you know the fun part was we never wrestled yeah. you know they, they'd bring celebrities and you know at that point they didn't know what to do with them so you know you bring in LL Cool J or Rebecca Romaine or Mr. T or something they'd, oh put them with Ron and John so they put them at the poker table with us and we wouldn't have to wrestle we just do some celebrity interaction and you know put them over and make you know what laugh at whatever they wanted us to laugh at you know they, they're all fun to work with but we never we didn't wrestle we, we just <laughs> sat backstage and drank beer yeah. <laughs> the best gig ever. Well, I'm gonna say, yeah, I'm gonna say that was a tough gig right there. <laughs> I mean, me and Ron wrestled each other. We we wrestled all kinds of these, you know, tough, stiff matches, and we got over more doing that stupid, silly stuff with that table than we ever did doing anything. Yeah. Well, I think it's because it, it showed a different side of probably both of you. 
that they didn't see before. They're, they're used to seeing the one character right there, but they're seeing kind of a different character right now. Or I should say, maybe it's just because of the whole different environment. You're still inside the ring, and you, you got a, a poker table, stuff like that, but but you're doing something different. We were pulling out of arena one night. I think you like this. And uh, some guy cut us off and flipped us off and run. And so, you know, we're in a rental car. So I hit him, you know, from behind. <laughs> so and they pull over. We pull over. We think there's like four or five guys. This is going to be a heck of a fight. So we get out of the car. They get out of the car. And so they do, hey, PA, can we get pictures? <laughs> or sit up. Me and Ronald, ah! <laughs> Sure, whatever. <laughs> wow. That's funny. Ron oh, we had a blast. You know, we we traveled. You know, we traveled so much together. It was just, it was a lot of fun. Teddy Long was our pretty much our driver the entire time, and we had we had a lot of fun. Did did, did Ron come up with that that his one little one liner? Because all I ever would say was, "Damn, that's that, he, that was it." He said that about Teddy Long. He's he Teddy. He's Teddy used to. I don't know, frustrate him or not. They're they're really good friends. And he goes, "Damn, Long." And that so Ron used to say that all the time about Teddy, damn long. And uh that's somebody said, Hey, just say that on air. And Ron really, I the first time he's he goes, I don't think it's gonna be that big a deal. And then when he said it, people laughed and popped, and th then he just yeah. got where all he would say is one word. <laughs> exactly. I mean that that's that's I mean, that's when you break up when you say Ron's name right there, it's one of the first things that come to my mind is the word damn. You know, that's it. Yeah, and, and and it was so good because Ron literally, you know, he's a great talker. I mean, Ron can really talk. He's a smart guy. But literally, he said one word, and that's all people, and people loved it. He would sit there and milk it the whole time and finally end up saying damn in that deep voice, and the place would just go nuts. Sold a ton of shirts that just said damn on it. Yeah, it was the wow. best gig ever. We're in a snowstorm one time up in uh, somewhere up in Massachusetts, that turnpike going to Boston, and Teddy Long's driving. I said, "Teddy, pull over. I got, I got to pee." And he goes, "Again?" I go, "Teddy, I'm drinking. Just pull over." And I said, "It's not that big a deal. There's nobody on the road." So I get out. Ron gets out. I get back in. Teddy drives off, and and <laughs> I, I'm looking at Teddy, and I said, "Teddy, that's not funny." And he goes, "What?" I said, "It's cold out there." And he goes, "What's not funny?" He goes, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Leaving Ron on the side of the road." And he, I didn't leave Ron. He looks back and goes, where's Ron? And I go, you left him in a snowstorm on the internet. So you know that message is that we had to back up about half a mile in a snowstorm to get back to Ron. By the time we got back to Ron, he had his hand on his hip. He had snow built up on his head and snow built up on his sleeve. And he is, he's furious. So he's, Teddy stops about five feet from him. He goes, get out and tell Ron that I did not do that on purpose. So I rolled down the window. I said, can you believe he's laughing about this? How he left me? <laughs> Throwing him underneath the bus there. Oh, there cool. yeah. At one, at one point, I thought I've got to back off because I think Ron may kill him. Wow. Ron's not the type that ever sells anything, but he was very, he was very quiet for a long time, which was pretty scary. Social media is there, John. What if, if people want to contact you or to book you for other things? Do you, have, do you have any kind of like a social media outlet or ways that people can contact sure, you? Sure, I don't do it much. But uh, JC Layfield on Twitter is uh, my initials, JC, last name Layfield, or my initials on Twitter that uh, people can get hold of me of that. I have a Facebook page, but I don't really, don't really look at it that much. Oh, okay. Well. But no, thank you, though. J.C. Layfield, people want to get hold of me, they can DM me on Twitter and stuff. They, they can get hold of me that way. That's probably the easiest way for people to get hold of me. Okay. Uh, more so, well, more so never, than anything. never know. If it, 
mean, we're, we're kind of getting coming away there still. It's uh, you know, to me, I, I just got things to keep 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 people busy to keep them, you know, something fun that they might want to do there down the road. Who knows? It's amazing. You know, these young kids are all building these incredible brands on social media, you know, which I yeah. still don't get it completely, but they're, they're making I mean, these Paul brothers, the, the Logan and Jake Paul, I mean, they're making millions of dollars off social media. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing. You know, you wonder yeah. if a guy like say Muhammad Ali or a uh, Floyd Mayweather would have had social media more. Mayweather had it some, but you know, a guy like Ali, I mean, oh my God, he'd have a hundred oh, million mean, followers. And in, in, in that same realm, though, you now have artificial intelligence that's coming in, and that kind of—I don't know—I'm kind of mixed emotions about that. I'm kind of—it's kind of like, are we opening up Pandora's box here in the same process? Because AI has the capability of learning. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, we are. I, yeah, to answer your question, yes, I—I'm I, sure we are. I don't know where it's going to go, but I'm—I'm I'm sure it's not. It's gonna—it's gonna get bad before it gets better. Is my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, it, it makes me nervous because, again, there is, no, as I said, there's no human type of elements of compassion. It, it, it just, it, it, when you simply just ask a, a question, it's going to give you a cut rate, rate to, to the answers, no matter what it is, without taking anything into equation-wise. And, and uh, uh, I'm trying to think here of the gentleman that uh, makes him nervous there as well. Gosh. I got his picture on my face, but I can't come up with the name or a fan. But, but, but John, I know we've we've, got, we've gone over an hour. I don't want to tie you up in more or less. Mr. Fry, you got another question there for John or not. I, I want to be respectful of time and appreciate the fact that uh, you gave us yeah gave us uh, uh, some time in your life there. But, but uh, you know, John, I actually really appreciate this for a fact. I got a chance to get to, to know you more. I did not get a chance to really know you back in, in the days that we were working together at uh, for the same company but uh you know this has been, been very enlightening and uh, i i like all the things that that, that you are involved in is so. you two saying goodbye yet yeah is our youth two saying goodbye yet <laughs> gosh here i'm trying to put john over now you uh, okay let me ask you a question you ask me if i'm gonna if i have a question then you just keep going on no okay go ahead then don all right we got uh uh, our 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 cameraman producer here is of a Mexican descent, so he wants to know about the Eddie Guerrero angle, you know, and how all that went off. Oh my God, yeah, I, thank you. I, I love talking about Eddie Guerrero. So they they after nine eleven, uh, you know, we went to uh, I first invaded Afghanistan. I was down in South Africa, I tore a bicep, and Vince sent me around the world, kind of promoting the Xbox when it just came out. He calls me and said, would you like to go to Afghanistan? And I said, yeah, I, I, actually, I'd love to. I was one of the first civilian groups to go into Afghanistan with some, you know, some country singers and some, you know, pretty actresses and things like that. And I got the idea of having like a Bob Hope USO tour, uh, like for WWE. And so I, I mentioned it to Vince and Vince goes, oh, that's great. He goes, write something up for me. Let's do this. So then they started Tribute to the Troops. Uh, is when they started that when we just had the 21st year of tribute to the troops we'd go to iraq every christmas and afghanistan every christmas and i'd been hurt i tore my bicep i'm trying to come back i had a hernia operation i think i'm pretty much done ron had retired and so i don't have a tag team partner anymore i thought well 
you know, decent career. I'm ready, you know, ready to kind of be a liaison between WWE and the, the armed forces, which I thought that was kind of my role is what I, at least what, how I perceived it. Vince calls me and says, we need somebody for Eddie Guerrero in the Staples Center in six weeks. He goes, I got this idea of basically a modern day J.R. Ewing type character. Vince didn't see it as J.R. Ewing. I did. It was people have asked him about it. He didn't see that at all. He saw it just a rich stock market guy, kind of like a Ted DiBiase modern mm -hmm. character. And when I came out, people didn't buy it at all. I mean, at all. Uh, a couple promos wasn't working. Tickets weren't selling. And I thought, man, this is going to be a one-off. So Chavo Guerrero, Eddie's brother, came to me and said, we've got an idea said, we're in El Paso coming up on Mother's Day. Their father, Gory Guerrero, was a legendary promoter like Fritz was or in Dallas or Dory was, Fort Funk was in Amarillo. And he said, we're going to do something to honor him. And after the match, you come down, attack Eddie, and our mother, 74 years old, is going to fake a heart attack and go down. <laughs> so... I said, this is brilliant. I may get killed, but this is brilliant. So <laughs> talk, talk about a family that's willing to go all, all, all in. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So we have state troopers around the ring. We have extra security around the ring. I'm getting out there, and Eddie beats me in the match for the championship. He presents the mother with flowers. I come over, hit him over the head with a chair. By mistake, I, I bust him open, you know, hard way, but, you know, which added to the effect. <laughs> the mother goes down. And when she went down, the place was packed. It was all Latino people there to see Eddie Guerrero and honor Gory Guerrero. It got completely quiet. I never felt anything like that. The place, when that 74-year-old woman, Miss Guerrero, went down, it was silent. People couldn't believe what had just happened. And Eddie's on the ground, and he goes, Ese, you better get the fuck out of here. <laughs> And I'm sitting there and we got it. We're filming it like from security camera. So it looks legit. And I'm thinking, I got to get all this on camera. If, you know, if I can just live through this, I'm going to be the, I'm the hottest heel in the world. <laughs> I'm sitting there cutting the promos, the security going, John, you've got to get out of here. You've got to get out of here. So finally I get to the back. They got my car running, my bag in the car. And they give me an escort all the way to El Paso city limits. The police do. And, and they stopped. And I said, guys, nobody followed us. They said, okay, do not come back to the city. We cannot guarantee your safety. Said, would you drive all the way to Odessa? They had arranged for me to fly out of Odessa to the next town, which is a couple hours. So I drive all the way to Odessa, fly out. The video airs and everything changed. Next night, we're in San Bernardino. As soon as I get in the ring, somebody jumps in the ring after me, tries to get me, tries to get at me. And I realize, oh my God, we've got, we've got them. We go to the Staples Center. We set an attendance record at the Staples Center, an all-time attendance record because of that angle. And because of that, with Eddie, uh, it made the whole JBL character. You know, a month later, they dropped the title to me, and then I held it for a record length of time. But it was, you know, when I say I owe 100% of my career to Eddie Guerrero, I owe literally 100% of my career. He saved my career. He made my career. He gave me everything he not only gave me that storyline he gave me a storyline that took the title off of him yeah. and put it on me he used to call me all the time of the day and night he go i got something for you essay i said what is it tell them my ancestors come over here in a boat not an inner tube that's great so if you're gonna get me killed he goes no no, no it's, good essay. it's good good essay 
when I used to walk around at like airports and stuff, you see a group of Hispanic people, you could hear them cussing me. I mean, Eddie was that popular. I was, brother's not, there was not a person on the planet that Hispanics hated more than me. And, and a lot of regular, a lot of uh, whites and blacks too, but especially Hispanics because Eddie was so much, meant so much to the Latino people. Wow. Years later, I when he passed away, unfortunately, I did part of his eulogy and people realized then we were good friends. And now it's just the opposite. When I see like a group of Hispanics go, oh, tell me some Eddie stories. You know, before it was like, ah, cover wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Eddie, Eddie made everything happen. He and his brother Chavo that night in El Paso. People that will tell you about it, I've never, I've never felt anything like it. I mean, I've never seen ten thousand people completely silent. Then all of a sudden, it just started murmuring, and it started to roar. And that's when people started to try to come over the rails. And thank God, you know, we had all these extra, you know, police and uniform and stuff that were keeping me safe. But it was, <laughs> it was a, it was a fun adventure. <laughs> You satisfied? Wow. Okay, you get the get the uh, nod of approval from our our Mexican American here. Oh, I'll tell you another Mexican story right quick before we go. So the first <laughs> time I went down to Mexico, I'm working down there with, uh, and I, I go down there. I didn't know a Vampiro Americano. I don't know if you know Vampiro from yeah, yeah. most yeah. of them from WCW. He's a massive star down in Mexico. Massive. He and Conan were really over. They I didn't realize that Vampiro was had so much. Uh, he, he had he apparently he had punched the stooge in the office in monterey and which i thought was great because i think all stooges should be punched so it was it was fine with me they brought me down to mess with him i thought they were bringing me down as the heel vampire and he was in on it so they bring me down they put the title on me they give me the name vampiro americano now they give me all this stuff to wear so i'm going around on tv and i'm building up until they bring in vampiro canadians the real vampire to fight me in Monterey at the Plaza del Toros. So I'm sitting there in a room, in walks Vampiro Canadians, the real vampire, who's over like crazy. And he sits down across from me. He's just eyeballing me. I mean, just eyeballing me. And I, and I thought, something's wrong. I said, he's about to punch me. And I don't know why he's mad. And I mean, I'm doing all this stuff for him. I'm going to lose the title to him. I'm going to lose the name to him. I'm going to put mm -hmm. him over. And finally, I, I said, is there something wrong? And it's just me and him in this little bitty room. And he looks at me, goes, you're wearing my shit. And I said, well, that's the idea. I'm wearing your stuff. And then I'm like, he goes, no, you're wearing my shit. I had no idea that he had bought this stuff, had it made. The Mexican office in Monterey went down and picked it up and gave it to me and didn't tell him about it. So <laughs> wow. I'm literally, I've got his name, I've got his title, and I'm literally wearing his gear on television for months. And he's <laughs> watching and he's sitting and, and he's sitting there across from me. And, and, and I, I start laughing. I go, I, I said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's and he just relaxes. He goes, You're not in on it, are you? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he tells me the whole story. And I thought that's the greatest story ever. He <laughs> said, so, so that's my <laughs> Mexican stories. I, uh, I was wearing Vampiro shit and I gave uh, Eddie Guerrero's mom a heart attack. <laughs> wow. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a, pre, a finish of the story. He, he's the nicest guy in the world. Vampiro. I love, love the guy. And after he realized I wasn't in on it and we, we became good friends about, 20 years later, I'm in an elevator in a hotel and this guy gets on good looking guy, real shape, you know, close shaped hair. And he goes, you're not going to talk to me. And I knew I recognized him, but I wasn't sure who it was. He goes, you're wearing my shit. I go, 
Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> and he goes, by the way, you never returned it to me. <laughs> <laughs> you just didn't recognize him at the time that you got on or what's that? You just didn't recognize when you got on the elevator? No, 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 because he, he had he had really long dreads when, when we were young, you know, 20 years later, but he had really long dreads. Oh, you know, okay. like elevator, you don't really, you know, try to try to look at the person next to you. Sure, you know, sure, sure. Kind of got on and I just see this guy with really short hair. Once I once I looked at him, I realized uh, I realized who it was. Wow, that's funny. That's great. But some great, uh, you know, that's the that's a good part about our business, about your business. There's some of the greatest stories ever. And before social media, when you had all this stuff with the cell phones, all we had was each other. And that's why we had so many great stories and so much great friendship and brotherhood over the years with so well, then, but then witness all those good, the great pranks that took place along the way there too, because you got to break up the monotony somehow, you know. <laughs> That's exactly right. Hey guys, listen, I, I want to tell you yeah. thank you. I, I've I've thank really you. have watched all your guys' fights and a big fan of what you you guys have done, and uh, it's it's a tremendous honor to be on with uh, two such incredible legends like you guys. So thank you very much for having me. Thanks well, John, thank you, thank you for be being on and then again I like I said I got a chance to, to get get to know you a whole lot more than I did at, at the time when I when we were working for the same man uh, back uh, in our WWF days there. So I really enjoyed getting to getting to know you here more especially all the, the fine work that you're continuing to do with our youth there today. So on behalf of Don and myself I'll say thank you very much and for, for toxic masculinity and uh, and have a great evening. Yes sir. Thank you. Thank you sir. Yep. Awesome. Uh, Thanks, guys. Thank you for watching another episode of Dan and Don's Toxic Masculinity. You better like, subscribe, and share, or I'm going to come to your house.